Hello everyone, I am Giulio Prisco and this is the Turing Church podcast. Today I am in conversation with Howard Bloom. I should uh, maybe introduce Howard, but uh, there would be too much to say. <laughs> yes, there would be, be just too much to say. I would just say that Howard is one of the greatest thinkers of today. Just Google him and uh, take a look at his uh, website, howardbloom.net. He has also written a lot of books and we're going to cover his books later. Now, I am planning to focus this conversation on a space flight and human space expansion. But uh, well, being uh, Howard, uh, the polymath is, I'm sure, the conversation will touch many other interesting things as well. Hello, Howard. Good to see you. Julie, it's, it's wonderful to see you. Let's start with this. In one of your books, you tell the story of how you accidentally started the, the 60s, which were a troubled but also wonderful decade. But the 60s are gone. Perhaps one day you will write a book on how you accidentally started the 21st century. <laughs> we, are, we are in 2022 now, and the 21st century never really started. We ended the 90s with great expectations, but well, instead of the 2001 of Kubrick and Clark, we got September 11, 2001. And uh, September 11 set uh, the tone of Western uh, culture, and we never uh, recovered. So how do you plan to start the 21st century for real? A vision transplant. Um, there's a line in Proverbs, you know it well, without a vision, a nation shall perish. And a vision is generally a view of a paradise toward which you are aiming and a paradise that you can achieve if you work hard enough. And that paradise is always somehow over your head. Nature has built us, she's built lizards, she's built crustaceans, she's built puppy dogs to have a height obsession. Um, for example, when two crayfish go up against each other in a contest to determine who is the alpha male who will get all the sex, it's a height contest, Julio. It's a contest to see who can break nature's most basic law, gravity, the most effectively. And the, the creature, the crayfish, that gets its head the highest wins. And this results in a radical change in the hormonal cocktail within the two um, crayfish. The crayfish that wins gets octopamine and a bunch of other hormones of victory and walks around erect um, and ready to challenge any other male um, for his position as alpha male, to prove he's really the alpha. But the, the crayfish who loses is charged with the hormones of defeat. And he drags around and stays close to the ground. It's almost as if you can see him saying, I wish I could dig a hole and hide because height has everything to do with this. And so if crayfish are height obsessed, if puppies are height obsessed, when puppies play, it's not the innocent thing it seems to be. It's a status game. 
And how does a puppy prove that it has the highest status? Well, the proof is in that word, highest. It gets on top of all of the other puppies, literally. And it becomes what we call the king of the heap, the highest dog, the top dog. These are instincts in us. Break the laws of gravity, rise as high as you possibly can. But puppies cannot make rocket ships. Crayfish cannot make rocket ships either. The only one of us who can make rocket ships are human beings. And why is this relevant? Because life got its start on this planet 3.85 billion years ago, roughly. And this planet was the most hostile ball of stone in the sky, the worst poison pill that you can possibly imagine. It was the home, not just of climate catastrophe, it was meteors were striking, volcanoes were going off, the liquids in the seas were poisons, things like phosphorus and sulfur. And life had an attitude and its attitude was, take every obstacle and turn it into a treat. Turn it into a possible foodstuff, turn it into a possible home, turn it into an opportunity. And life was rich in research and development. It always has been. Microorganisms, you know, we are told these days that we are running out of surpluses, that we've run through all the, that we've run through all of the resources on earth. And we have to tighten our belts um, and become miserly. And that is totally false. Who proves it to be false? Bacteria. 12 miles beneath your feet and mine, bacteria, bacteria are kidnapping, seducing, and recruiting atoms of raw rock and bringing them into the bioprocess, bringing them into the process of life. For every ounce of material that is bio stuff, there are 100 million ounces of dead stuff just waiting to be kidnapped, seduced, and recruited into the process of life. And bacteria do the research and development for that with incredible speed. So do viruses. The whole micro community does research and development. So if they can do research and development, what makes us so special? We are the only creatures that can get this 3.85 billion year old project out of the gravity well beyond the atmosphere, to other poison pills of stone in the sky. And life is aching for us to do that. Um, if you look at my manifesto, Garden the Solar System, Green the Galaxy, it maps out basically how nature has given us a mandate to take life to space. When we, if we, my goodness, what is that? Um, if we put you in space, we have put an entire ecosystem in space because you are 100 trillion cells, but 90 trillion of those cells don't even claim to be you. They are bacterial colonies with more bacteria in a colony than all the humans who have ever lived on the face of the earth, all communicating, all creating a collective brain, all doing research and development work. So, but but our task, we cannot live without fresh vegetables. Um, and our task is to green and garden the place, to farm it, um, to farm the space in between the earth and the moon, to farm the space in between the earth and Mars, to farm the spaces on the moon itself, 
to farm Mars to turn them green. And once we do, life has this peculiar ability to see the opportunities hidden in the new obstacles in its path, the obstacles of the Mars, of Mars, the obstacles of the moon. And it has a capacity to turn those obstacles into feasts, into tools. Um, and if we are selfish, we will limit life to this tiny little orb. And if we do, we will be creating one of the greatest sins against nature ever conceived by a species, ever conceived by a species. And that is not a sin we can afford. In America, there is the legend of Johnny Appleseed, who in the 1800s or 1700s took apple seeds on a boat and, and planted apple seeds all over the North American continent, which had not known apples before. And we are here to be the Johnny Appleseeds of space, to spread life as far as we possibly can, and to help it survive so that it can take on the challenges of space by itself eventually, except nobody ever takes on a challenge by itself. No species ever does. Every species is at the center of a vast web of species on, be on whose behalf it is performing certain chores. Our chore is space. That's great. That's a complete um, philosophical explanation of how by going to space, we will uh, take uh, all of life with us to space and make more and more on the universe alive. Now, since uh, this is uh, perhaps a little bit too philosophical for those people who just uh, don't have the time to think too much, uh, could you perhaps uh, condensate uh, all that into a short, say, one minute elevator pitch that well, you can use to little, persuade someone. I have a motto that I came up with for the National Space Society in the United States, and it's bring space to life by bringing life to space. Mm -hmm. it's, it's as simple as that. And uh, NASA, which is making terrible blunders, wasting huge amounts of money on useless things, is on August 29th, it is due to launch what it calls its space launch system with an Orion capsule on top. The space launch system is made up of old rocket parts from the shuttle days. It's a Franken rocket. And the Orion is a duplicate for all practical purposes of the space capsules that were used in the Apollo era in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And all of this is gonna cost us $4.1 billion per launch to get three people into space. And NASA claims this will get us to the moon. NASA's lying. The space launch system rocket cannot land on the moon. The Orion capsule cannot land on the moon. We're awaiting some mysterious landing craft that hasn't been invented yet. Um, to get us from lunar orbit to the moon. And while we Americans are circling the moon in orbit, we will be able to watch the Chinese and the Russians establish their first research base where it really counts on the lunar surface, on the surface of the moon. Now, if Elon Musk's mathematics turns out to be correct, and it's probably too good to be true, but for the price of one space launch system launch 
you could launch 2,000 starships. The space launch system with its Orion will only carry three people. The starship is designed to carry 100 people in luxury. So for the price of one space launch system launch, you could launch, I believe it's 200,000 people to space. You could skip these primitive reruns of 1969 and go directly to 2021 or to 2031 um, in one giant step. Now, the question is, okay, well, the Space Launch System has never launched and Starship has never launched. Elon Musk struck it. Well, they've been testing the engines for the Starships and the booster that will carry the Starship into space this week. They're getting very close to being able to launch. There was disappointing news when I was here on Zoom trying to get here early so we could do a sound check. I was checking out the news. And the disappointing news is they're now predicting that the Starship will not take its first orbital flight this month. Well, I was hoping it would, but it will soon. Um, unlike the, the space launch system, which is radically unsafe because its engines have only been tested on the launch pad once. Elon Musk's takes his Starship prototypes and launches them. And then he sees what can go wrong and what can go right, and he upgrades. And he's been upgrading so many times that he is now on his booster rocket number seven, and he's now on his Starship prototype, I believe it's number 22, which means safety. The more you take chances and launch rockets to see what can go wrong, the safer your rocket is going to be. The space launch system, NASA's giant $40 billion system, will take to the skies for the first time without any test launches of this kind. It will be radically unsafe. And it's too expensive, Julio. It is its last century's rocket. Elon is developing this century's rocket. And that rocket is going to change the relationship between life and space. And there's, there's one other little detail that I forgot to tell you in my opening tirade here. Imagine that you're a young dinosaur and you have this crazy idea um, of taking to the sky and your parents are gonna sit you down and this actually happens in genetic terminology, not in English, but your parents are gonna sit you down and say, Julia, you're crazy. You're talking about going to the sky. Everything good is down here on Earth. The Earth is green and generous. Your housing is here down on Earth. Your food is down here on Earth. Now look above your head very carefully and tell me what you see. It's nothing. There is nothing up there. There are clouds during the day and stars at night. You cannot make your nests in clouds and you cannot eat stars. Well, your parents would have proven to be wrong. And if you had taken to the skies, you would not only have had a whole new realm to explore, but that realm would have been so rich in possibility that there would eventually be twice as many of these loony dinosaurs who flew, twice as many species as there are of land-walking mammals. 
and the lifespan of the dinosaurs who flew would be 60% longer than the lifespan of those creatures who clung to the generous bosom of Mother Earth. And today, well, when you walk out of your place today, um, you are not going to see a single one of the conservative green dinosaurs, the eco-dinosaurs, but you will see dozens, if not hundreds, of the loony dinosaurs who flew, because today we call them birds. So is nature trying to tell us something? Your lifetime is increased if you take to the skies. Your number of opportunities for making a living is radically increased if you take to the skies. Take to the skies. Yes. Uh, let me go back to this thing about you know NASA space launch system, Starship, Elon Musk, and all that. I don't disagree with anything that you said. At the same time, um, you know, if uh, NASA and all its political environment and financial environment, they really want to do this uh, space launch system. And even if uh, that uh, is going to cost much more money than it should. Now, my reaction would be, okay, just let them do it. Why? <laughs> no, uh, I call myself, uh, uh, both uh, a space fundamentalist and a space agnostic. Fundamentalist, because uh, to me, going up there and expanding human civilization to space is the most important thing that we must start doing at this moment. Also agnostic, because I'd, um, I don't really care how it's done, if uh, it's government, uh, private sector, uh, United States, uh, China, something else, or something else, uh, how much it costs and, and all that. Uh, I don't really care about that yet. I think the important thing is that there are some visible signs that we are doing the first little steps, uh, steps for human space expansion. So yes, I also think the... Elon Musk's way of doing things is better than NASA's. But if that NASA plan has too much inertia to be stopped, which perhaps is the case given that uh, politics works as it works, I'll say, okay, let NASA do that. Let them at least uh, try to do something good with the system that will uh, excite so many people all over the world that uh, something good will happen anyway. This would be my first reaction to this. Well, exciting a population about space is essential. Uh, my impression when I first entered the space movement in 2005 um, was that the polls at that time were indicating that people had lost their interest in space. But the polls over the last two years have indicated that people are regaining their interest in space. Um, and there's a, a recent YouGov poll, and in every, at every age level, 50% or more of the American population is enthusiastic about space. That's a remarkable change. And why does that change exist? Elon Musk has become famous. When I first met him in 2005, Elon had not even 
lit a firecracker in a tin can. He hadn't launched anything. And NASA was making fun of him. And I saw him speak. And remember, I've worked with um, Michael Jackson and Prince and Bob Marley and all kinds of very important people. And apparently there's an alarm in my gut that said that goes off when I see a person of mythic proportions. And even though Elon had gotten nowhere yet, um, that mythic thing in the gut went off and it said, kids are going to be following the example of this man in 110 years. Um, and Elon has proved himself in the years since then. Uh, NASA no longer laughs. He has a, um, a, a, an achievement record of successful launches without any problems um, that makes Na what NASA is doing look silly. So Elon's vision is a regular transport system like regularly scheduled steamships in the 19th century or regularly scheduled train trips from New York to California. And he wants to have eventually three Starship launches a day. He wants, I believe, to, to mass produce a thousand Starships. And soon space is going to be as ordinary as your backyard um, if Elon has his way. And thank God there are some visionaries um, like Elon Musk in the world. And if it were easy, then Jeff Bezos, with all his money, would be as successful as Elon Musk. But Jeff Bezos has only launched his little toy rocket that goes to Disneyland space, that doesn't really go to space, but that takes, uh, I believe, six people, four people at a time. That's not space, Julio. He's been talking about a new Glenn that would presumably compete with Elon Musk's rocket, but we haven't seen any signs of the new Glenn existing at all. And meantime, Elon is launching. And, and Elon is now launching three of his Falcon 9 rockets a week. That pace of space access was impossible just two years ago. So Elon is carving out the 21st century that you and I were looking forward to. And of course, I as a thinker would like to carve out, someone has got to articulate the visions. And that's the role of us thinkers. But uh, only in the same way that only one man has really conquered uh, the space transport problem on this planet so far, despite all the money the Chinese are throwing at it, all the money the Russians are throwing at it, and all the money that NASA is throwing at it, very few thinkers become seminal. Very few thinkers survive their own lifetimes. So when you devote your life to thinking and I devote my life to thinking, we are entering a lottery where only a very tiny number of people who put their entire lives on the line are ever going to outlast the grave. And you have this brilliant idea. It's amazing. In the Turing Church and in the book that I read. And it's that eventually we will evolve so far that we are able to finally master time travel. And when we master time travel, we will occasionally go backwards in time and tinker with things, with our superior knowledge and our superior technology. 
And the primitive people of those times from the time of the pyramids, 1500 years before Christ um, to the 1950s, will look at what we've done in tinkering and will say, those are surely the work of the gods. Um, so in other words, what Julio Prisco is proposing is that there are gods, they're us, um, a thousand years from now, reaching back in time to give us a gentle lift. That idea deserves to <laughs> to out uh, to survive us. It's it. It's oh, a terrific you, uh, idea. Thank you so much. And by the way, it's not my original idea. I've been uh, taking up the work of others, but you just made my day, and that gave me more energy to do all the little uh, things that I can do today with a smiling face. Uh, going back to Elon Musk, you know, uh, I'm a big, big, big fan of his. As a matter of fact, I hope uh, his uh, very troubled acquisition of Twitter will go through so that he will be able to do even more to influence uh, space enthusiasm among people. But, you know, and uh, it can be said that, that uh, Elon Musk could do everything without uh, government support. But that is not really true. No, it's because not true. That, he gets money. The government not, keeps doling out money yeah, to him Not on only the side. that. Not only it's for like, that. But right. also, it's like feeding a dog. Yeah. You know, also, under the dining because uh, he depends on the government for right. uh, regulations. And in fact, he has not launched the, the space starship yet. Ah, because of the FAA regulations. Right, the launch authorization. Now, uh, right. sometimes in my gloomiest moments, I think that the FAA will keep delaying the authorization for a very long time. And therefore, the Starship will never take off so that uh, all the interests behind the SLS can be happy. Now, in case that happens, sometimes I think it's um, a joke, but it's only a half joke. Right. Shouldn't Elon Musk just move the fuck out of the United States and <laughs> establish himself somewhere else? Not only in evident uh, places like, for example, Luxembourg or uh, United Arab uh, Emirates, but uh, you know, shouldn't he just move to China, perhaps? Right. Well, the difficulty with China is that um, back in the 19, the, the Western system is this incredible system. And you know, there's a Howard Bloom Institute and it has two initiatives. Yes. One initiative is called Omnology. It's a scientific discipline for the promiscuously curious. It says, do not let your parents or any of your teachers stovepipe you into one narrow discipline. Um, if you are curious about many disciplines, follow all of those curiosities simultaneously. And when your friends reach their 40s and wonder why they're here on earth, and are um, if they're women, they are planning elaborate divorces so they can find out who they really are. And if they're men, they're buying little red sports cars and cheating, cheating on their wives, picking up lawns because they don't know why they're here. You will just be coming back from the wilderness of your multiple curiosities with your first answers. And while your friends feel they are at the end of their lives, you will know you are at the beginning of yours. So that's omnology. And uh, Kepler Space University in Florida 
has got us putting together a, a program, an academic program on omnology. The second project is Why Save Western Civilization? And the Why Save Western Civilization project is based on the following. Every civilization that calls on our idealism um, says that it's going to lift the poor and the oppressed. But only the Western system has really done it. Um, if you have been born in the Western system in 1850, or, or your odds, your life expectancy would have been 37.8 years. If you'd been born in the Western system in 2000, your life expectancy would have been 78.8 years. In other words, the Western system somehow more than doubled the human lifespan, added 40 years to the life of an average human being. When the, the, the uh, emperors of China would be willing to give up almost all of their wealth just to get an extra <coughs> four years, and, and the potions they took to give them an extra four years often killed them off early. Um, second, um, if you'd been the poorest paid worker in London in 2000, you would have earned what an entire tenement full of workers earned in 1850. At seven Irish dock workers, you would have earned the equivalent of all of their pay combined. Um, if you had been, uh, if you were given an IQ, if you took an IQ test from 1916, the first year the Stanford Binet IQ test was administered, and you gave it to an average hundred kids anywhere in the Western world, they would measure on that IQ test as marginal geniuses because we've added 35 points to the average IQ in the last 100 years. And most important, we have increased the peace in the world by a factor of 10. If you had grown up in one of those lovely indigenous societies that lives in harmony with nature and at peace with its fellow man, your odds of dying a violent death at the hands of another human being would have been 10 times what they are today in Rome, London, New York, or Los Angeles, even Detroit. Um, so the Western system has accomplished material miracles. And if our great great grandparents could give us an extra 40 years of life, then surely we owe an extra 40 years to our great great grandkids, possibly more. If our great great grandparents could in increase uh, the wage of the poorest paid among us to seven times what it had been, surely we owe a minimum wage of $70 to our great-great-grandkids. And if our great-great-grandparents could improve the peace in the world by a factor of 10, surely we owe another factor of 10 to our great-great-grandkids. That is the Western mandate, and it can only be accomplished by using the Western system. And what is the Western system? It's a dynamic balance, a counterbalance, between three elements that struggle against each other constantly. One is government, one is private industry, and the third is the protest industry. And the protest industry got its start at the same time as the Industrial Revolution in the 1760s to 1780s, when the anti-slavery movement began in England. And without the protest industry, without this dynamic balance, things fall apart. How do we know? In 1980, um, Deng, Deng Xiaoping took an, a, a country that was a basket case, 
Mao had destroyed China. He'd killed roughly 40 million people with his various social experiments like the Great Leap Forward. Um, and Deng decided to import an element of the capitalist system, the Western system. And he said, let them get rich. And he took advantage of private enterprise. And the result is that over the course of the last 40 years, China has had the fastest growing economy in the world. It has literally lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. It's been an astonishment um, because there was a vigorous private industry. There was obviously a vigorous government and there was a protest industry back in the shadow of Deng. But then Xi Jinping came along 10 years ago and Xi Jinping operates on a philosophy similar to the philosophy of the former president of the United States. I'm a solitary genius and only I can fix it. And a former president, you mean uh, Donald Trump? Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, um, and he has been tearing apart private industry. For example, the two most famous men in China five or 10 years ago were Jack Ma and Xi Jinping. And Jack Ma showed up at conferences all over the world and was celebrated on magazine covers because he was a tech titan because his companies were creating genuine innovation, new payment techniques, for example, that were revolutionizing China. Well, Xi Jinping over the course of the last two years has crippled Jack Ma. He has made it impossible for Jack Ma to get any press, and he has cut Jack Ma off as the source of innovation for his companies. And that has crippled those companies. And he has been, he, Xi Jinping, has been attacking industry after industry after industry with <coughs> regulations and anti-corruption campaigns. Why? To make them all subservient to the Communist Party and who runs the Communist Party? Xi Jinping, the country's solitary genius. The result is that China has been increasing its growth at 9% to 10% a year. For years now, it's been increasing the size of its economy, but not this year. This year, China's growth is down to two and a half percent. At two and a half percent growth, China is not going to catch up and surpass the, United, the economy of the United States, all because Xi Jinping has failed to recognize how the Western system operates, a counterbalance of government, private industry, and the protest industry. He has destroyed the protest industry, um, and he is destroying private industry. What he's leaving as the sole arbiter of things is actually himself, the government. And the result is terrible for the Chinese economy. So if we want to indeed increase the lifespan of our grandkids by another 40 years, increase the peace in the world by a factor of 10, increase the minimum wage by a factor of seven, we have to recognize this magical power of the Western system, how its three elements work, and we have to champion pluralism, tolerance, freedom of speech, and democracy to keep this system not just going, but to keep it creating more material miracles for our great, great grandkids. Does that make any sense? It does, and you gave me a lot to think about about the importance of the protest industry. 
thing is that you know reading uh, social media and twitter and all that one sometimes gets the impression that uh, you know some forms of uh, social protests today are uh, really running out of bounds and they're making it impossible to do anything else. At least that's uh, the impression I have sometimes. Huh? But if I understand you correctly, you are telling me that uh, even that, even what seems uh, like uh, unreasonable excesses from uh, some sides have uh, a, have uh, an important role to play indeed. And the one danger, and I was, last night I went on 200 or 545 radio stations. I do this every Wednesday. And my topic yesterday was the FBI intrusion mm -hmm. at Mar-a-Lago, the summer estate of um, Donald Trump. And the difficulty in this situation is that the protest industry is becoming a militant industry. Um, the protest industry now has arms, now has military training, now has aspirations for what they call in QAnon, the storm. And the storm was supposed to happen on January 6th. And the storm, according to QAnon, is when all of the Democrats are led out of the Congress and the House and are lined up um, on the stairs of the Capitol and are executed, along with Mike Pence, who's killed. That is not a protest industry, Julio. But the protest industry in the Western system works because of civic virtues, because of civic norms, because of the commitment that was expressed by Voltaire a long time ago, which is, I may disagree with what you have to say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Mm -hmm. That's a major obligation in the Western yes. system. And you know, uh, I was planning to go back to the things I had scheduled for discussion, but this is too important to miss. Now, I do totally agree with uh, Voltaire, of course. And uh, uh, yesterday I tweeted the basically equivalent thing that Noam Chomsky said like uh, 10 or 15 years ago said exactly the same things. Now, um, you have rightly pointed out uh, some excesses of the right, but uh, don't you think that uh, there are uh, similar excesses of the left, what I like to call control left, to deny what uh, Voltaire and uh, Chomsky said? Well, the great danger on the left was back in the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s, because then there was a strong revolutionary movement um, on the left. And that was not a movement for peaceful change. Um, that was a movement for violent revolution, like the revolutions in China, like the revolution of 1917 um, in Russia. And a lot of people were killed in those revolutions. It's basically there are two revolutionary traditions. One is the revolutionary tradition of the United States, and the other one is the revolutionary tradition of France. And in the revolutionary tradition of the United States, yes, there was a bloody war. Yes, 40,000 people died, but people were not lined up and sent to the gallows for mass killings when it was over. People settled their disagreements peacefully for the most part. Um, 
Whereas in France, whole classes of people were lined up and trotted off in carts to be beheaded. Um, and it's the, any revolutionary movement has a choice. Go with the civic approach, the civic virtue approach that was used in the United States, or go with the guillotine that was used in France. And the guillotine movements have produced nothing but devastation. They created, they killed tens of millions of people, roughly 50 million people in Russia. They killed another 50 million people in China. To accomplish what? Russia never became a major player on the economic, the world economic stage. She's only being managed to become a major player because of, of petrocracy, um, because of oil. Um, and without oil, I mean, back in the 1990s, when the Soviet Union fell and the, um, the, the, the um, walls fell down, a friend of mine who had grown up in Russia had enormous ebullience about what would happen next in Russia. And he wrote an entire book about all of these incredible industrial skills that the Russians had that no one else had. Everything from making chocolate to making um, single lens reflex cameras. And he, he, was, he had written the Bible of day trading, um, a form of trading on the stock market. So he was shipped off to Russia and he spent six months of the year in Russia. He took four workers' apartments, merged them together, put in a sauna. Um, and he spent six months in Moscow and six months in New York City. Well, those industries that he foresaw, everything from making incredible children's wagons to, again, making chocolate, um, none of them ever came to fruition. Why? Because when you tried to start a new business and you had a great idea and your new business began to succeed, a bunch of strange people showed up in your office, big people, threatening people. And they explained that uh, the government and Vladimir Putin wanted a piece of your business. He wanted 50% of your business. And if you said yes, well, then you could stay in business. And if you said no, you could not stay in business. Well, carrying a burden of 50%, I, used, I ran, I founded from scratch two very successful businesses. If I'd been carrying the load of giving 50% of the business to the government, I would never have been able to build those businesses. The things those businesses accomplished could never, ever have happened. So the genius, the commercial genius of Russia has been successfully exterminated um, by Vladimir Putin. And it's oil that sustains Vladimir Putin. And the Chinese, apparently, I mean, Xi Jinping is the Chinese at this point. And Xi wants to go back to um, a Maoist government in which every industry is at heart controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, if that happens, as I said, China, remember when Japan mm -hmm, yes. was clearly going to become the greatest economy in the world, and it was about to surpass the United States in the 1970s and the 1980s, and then it stalled 
it became the second greatest economy in the world, which for an island nation is an amazing accomplishment. Um, but it never made it to number one. And it's been limping ever since. Um, China seems doomed by Xi Jinping to repeat that destiny. And meanwhile, when it comes to things like doubling the average human lifespan and adding another 35 points to the average IQ, the burden of all of that rests on the West. And if the West fails to see what it is, that it is a dynamic balance between business, private industry, I mean, government, private industry, and the protest industry, if it fails to see its obligation for civic virtues, like tolerance, pluralism, and freedom of speech and democracy, then it too will fall into the form of stagnation that we've seen in Russia, um, that we've seen in the past in China, and that we may see again in China. And what does that do for humanity, history, and the very future of life itself? It amputates that future. And that is a sin, Julio. That is a sin uh, against nature. That is a sin against life. That is a sin against the cosmos evolutionary task, which is to put probes out into the realm of the impossible and fish some of those impossible things into the realm of everyday reality so we can take them for granted, stand on their shoulders and use them to elevate ourselves as we reach even further into the realm of the impossible. That's the ultimate role of this cosmos. And it's been doing that for 13.73 billion years now. And if we don't recognize our obligations, our mandates on behalf of that very aggressive and creative cosmos, um, let's take out the word aggressive, but they're very persistent and creative cosmos, then we are not doing our jobs here on earth. Right, and if I understand you right, one of the many things that we can do to fulfill this uh, obligation to the cosmos, to the cosmos is to save the Western civilization. Speaking of which, uh, you know, I was thinking, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts about what we can do to make people, and especially young people, and especially in the West, uh, fall in love with space again, like in the Apollo 60s. Now, uh, one can have the impression that at that time, everyone was a supporter of the space uh, program. But as a matter of fact, there was almost as much opposition to space programs as today and for the same reasons. Very so I guess uh, the difference in popular support was just a few percent points more than today, but those few percent points enabled uh, uh, miracles. So what should we do to recover that? And what are we spaceflight enthusiasts in the West doing wrong? Is anyone doing it right? Can we do it better? The and person doing the it, of the world? The person doing it right is Elon. Is Elon, um, right. Yes. And every time he has a success, he gathers more followers. Every time he has a success, he gathers more believers. And remember, a nation that looks up goes up, a nation that looks down goes down. We have had an uh, eco-extremist vision that we are on the verge of uh, eco-apocalypse, 
that we've eked out all the resources of this planet, we've raped the place, and nature is about to take her revenge. And it's that dark vision of a future that has motivated people like Greta Thunberg. And look how young she is, even today, very young. When you saddle people with that vision of a future in which there is no hope, you create gnarled human beings. You create caricatures of human beings. Humans need to see an open expanse that hasn't been explored yet, that hasn't been developed yet. Now, the China, when I was in China last in 2010, and when I was, I was in Seoul and Kuala Lumpur, all of the people in Asia were looking up because they were just beginning to penetrate space. They were just feeling hope for the first time in their lives because their economies were expanding dramatically. And so while there was a, a mood of gloom back here in the West, there was a mood of exuberance in Asia. And I co-founded and co-chaired the Asian Space Technology Summit. So I had a very good platform from which to watch this exuberance in operation. When Elon starts bringing people into space on his starship, when he gets us to Mars, when he lands even the first cargo on Mars, more and more people will look up. And the people who look up have to have the preponderance over the people who look down, or this society could kill itself, poison itself internally. Right. I mean, the eco view steals the dreams of the young and turns them into nightmares. And we cannot allow that. Not that we cannot allow the eco vision. It has, it's part of the protest industry. It has strong things to say from which we can learn. But ultimately, humans have to look up on behalf of all of life. They have to see unending horizons above their head. And the starship is the vehicle that's going to do it. Right. Um, you know, in fact, uh, um, there is a case to be made that uh, besides reality, besides what Elon Musk is doing, also literature, science fiction, film can promote the solar optimism and great expectations that we need. Uh, could you uh, just uh, list a couple of very inspiring uh, novels or uh, films that uh, everyone could watch? Well, you know, somehow I got optimism out of the first thing that hooked me on space was a show called Tom Corbett Space Cadet. Say that again? Tom Corbett Space Cadet. It was a television show. Right. And it turns out that it was created by Willie Lay. Now, yeah. back in the 1930s, there were two guys who were part of the amateur German rocket club. And one was Willie Lay and the other was Werner von Braun. And then the politics took a strange turn in 1933. And Willie Lay saw that as ominous and he fled to the United States. Werner von Braun, on the other hand, saw this strange political turn in Germany as an opportunity an opportunity to actually get his space dreams financed um, on behalf of a military operation. So he hung around and created a rocket program for Adolf Hitler 
And when the war was over, Werner von Braun had a choice. I mean, the war was coming to an end. The Russians were closing in from one direction. The Americans were closing in from the other. He had a choice. Who do I surrender to? The Americans or the Russians? And he put his brother on a bicycle and said, ride down to the Americans as fast as you can and surrender to them. So his brother arrived at an American tank battalion on a bicycle and issued a line that then became famous in science fiction for the next 40 to 60 years. Take me to your leader. He wanted to be taken to Dwight D. Eisenhower. Well, he wasn't taken to Dwight D. Eisenhower, but Werner von Braun and his rocket program were brought to the United States. And it's the V-2 rocket that Werner von Braun developed so Hitler could bomb London um, that became our first sounding rocket. And when I was a child, I had a chart of how high each of the sounding rockets that had broken the previous records had gone at White Sands, New Mexico. And I also had, when I was 10 years old, an engineering pamphlet to fit in my pocket um, that, among other things, told you what speeds you would have to get to if you were ever going to do this magical thing that no one had ever accomplished. And at, and at that point was a scientific fairy tale, orbit. Um, and then in 1957, the Russians actually put something into orbit, Sputnik, and the space race was on. And it was that space, oh, the, but the major influential stuff, Werner von Braun had this long distance vision of what humans inhabiting space could be like. And he discovered that there was a set designer um, and set painter in Hollywood, who among other things had designed the facades of buildings like the Chrysler building in New York, which is amazing. But more than anything else in life was addicted to space painting. And Werner von Braun hooked up with this man, Chesley Bonestell, and with Willie Lay, his old companion from the German Rocket Club, who by the way, was the major figure behind Tom Corbett's Space Cadet, the TV show, that hooked me on space. And the three of them collaborated on a series of illustrated books with Chesley Bonestell's illustrations. Um, there were four of them, and there was a series in a great big, gorgeous, full color magazine called Collier's back then. And those knocked my socks off. One day I was walking up the street and walking up the driveway of a house not far from mine to get to the backyard of a friend of mine. There was a cutaway in the fence. I, it never occurred to me there were people living in this house that I walked past every day. But one day, somebody poked his head out of the screen door and said, could you come in here? I have something for you. So I went inside this house. I'm Jewish and atheist. Um, these people were deeply Catholic. So I was shocked to see all the crucifixes on the walls and the paintings of Mary, but he took me to a closet. He opened it and up on a top shelf, he had every single issue of that series in Collier's magazine. And he somehow knew that I was the space person. And he gave me all of these. And these things were inspiring beyond belief. When Stanley Kubrick, put together 2001 A Space Odyssey. One thing to remember about Stanley Kubrick, he was not great on plots. He was great on visuals. 
he was great, great on creating icons. And he took the visions of Werner von Braun, Willie Lay, and Chesley Bonestell, and he created a movie around them. Remember that big rotating donut space station? That is a Werner von Braun, Chesley Bonestell, Willie Lay space station. And Willie Lay and Chesley Bonestell's series came out from 1948 on. And, um, and 2001, Stanley Kubrick was making that in 1971. So this vision carried. And today it's the Kubrick film that's iconic. Nobody remembers the illustrated books. Only people like me who are <laughs> advancing into old age, um, which I hope I never experienced. But um, at any rate, the, the new visions came from Stanley Kubrick. Well, those visions, we need equivalent visions of what you can do with a starship. Uh, right. In fact, uh, you know, uh, I was kind of uh, worried by what you said, because, you know, you mentioned only visions that were uh, proposed a long time ago. Right. Charlie Bonestell, uh, the Collier series, uh, Clark and Kubrick film, you know, 40, 50 censistics. Right. I mean, again, uh, there, should be, there should be something now. Right? Yes, now. And what I've done in 2015, I got very frustrated with somebody that I work with in the National Space Society. I was trying to tell him to take a whole bunch of pictures he was working with and organize them in chronological order. And I couldn't get the message across. So in frustration, I started getting the most inspiring pictures I could find online and organizing them to tell a story. And it's the story of how life took hold on this planet, took a poison pill of stone, gardened and greened it, and how life is going to do that in the future. At, at that point, we didn't have the starship yet. So I went back in something like uh, 2000, 2020, and I updated the thing with the starship. Now it could be updated with even more of the starship, but it's a manifesto for the future of life and the future of humanity. And it's, uh, it, it tells the story in 100 pictures and just 2,800 words. Um, and it's meant to uplift you. It is meant to be that iconic document that puts a future under your feet. I may and, have uh, seen it already, but uh, could you give a URL or a title so I people can find it? That you can find a copy of it on howardbloom.net. And hopefully, I'm not sure because it probably doesn't have all the pictures. I'm not sure that I publish it because I never was able to get clearance for these pictures I had stolen uh, right. from the internet. So I don't own the copyrights um, to these pictures. I just own the copyrights to the text and the layout. Um, so and I'll have to go back and check at some point and see if it actually is on howardbloom.net um, these days. But it to me that is it's a manifesto i wrote for a reason we need it and it's a manifesto i will sometime if i ever get the time and it's very hard to find time now because i'm immersed in so many projects including my next book um and my you know my actual core body of work is my books 
and I'm working on my eighth book, which is called The Case of the Sexual Cosmos, Everything You Know About Nature is Wrong. And it's 90% finished at this point, but I need to finish it and write the next book. And the next book is The Grand Unified Theory of Everything in the Universe, uh -huh. Including Sex, Violence, and the Human Soul, which is a project that I've been working on since I was 12 years old. Um, and there is a film. Huh? There is a film about that. I have seen it. It's a, it's really? a good one. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's called uh, the Grand Unified Theory of Power Bloom. Oh, that one. Yes, yeah, that, that film. One. I forgot about it. Yes. Yeah, it's a lot. So, yes. So there is a film about it. So I need to get these things out during my lifetime, and um, and even though for some reason my body doesn't really seem to age, I walk six miles a day. And I do 1,260 vibrational plankings five mornings a week. Um, but I'm 79 years old. I'm on the cusp of 80. However, Julio, once upon a time, I had a friend. And when I got on the phone with that friend on rare occasions, I would say, every day you wake up is the first day of the most important 20 years of your life. Then it occurred to me, maybe I should go look up how old he was on Wikipedia. So I looked him up and discovered he was 78 years old at the time. His name was Buzz Aldrin. And now that advice applies to me. Every day I wake up is the first day of the most important 20 years of my life. My girlfriend says, you have to live to be 100. She's only 27. Um, and, you know, is highly unlikely uh, that either of us will live to be 100. I would be... I will be 65 in a couple of months. Amazing. But, uh, tomorrow morning, I really plan to wake up thinking first <laughs> day of the next point. And, uh, you know, that's what I want to think every morning from now right. on. Well, and I hope it will be the case. And but it we helped had... Buzz, you know, if you were yeah, a celebrity, yeah, 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 yeah. you were isolated. And people, um, they fawn over you but they don't necessarily talk to you. And Buzz needed to hear these validating messages because that wasn't the only one that I delivered to him. One day um, I got in, you know how you're in the waiting room for an, uh, an airliner and your eye scopes out the most beautiful woman in the world automatically, you can't help it. That's the way you're built. Um, and you always hope that you're seated next to the most beautiful person in the room. And of course it never happens. Well, this day I was seated next to the most beautiful person in the waiting room. So I was about to start a conversation and I heard this voice behind me. Howard, is that you? And I looked around and it was Buzz Aldrin. We had accidentally gotten on the same plane. Um, now, because of assigned seating, I couldn't sit with him and I had to stick with the most beautiful woman in the waiting room. But when we got out, I waited for him. He was an aisle behind me um, for him to come out. And when he came out, I lectured this poor man. I lectured him for, you know how long it takes to get from your disembarkation gate to the luggage territory? It's forever. And I lectured him about the obligation of us human beings to make history, about the fact that um, Alexander the Great had been ridden by so much insecurity that he went up to the top of a mountain once and cried because he had no more worlds to conquer. That um, 
Winston Churchill, who helped save Western civilization um, at the end of the 30s and the 1940s, that Winston Churchill um, had what he called his black dog. He was depressed. He had a hard time getting out of bed and he couldn't sleep the way normal humans sleep. He had his staff wait for him after he finished formal dinners, having people over as guests. And then he would go to his staff at two in the morning and write until four o'clock in the morning. So, and he was pudgy, he was overweight, he was smoking too much, he was drinking too much, and yet he saved Western civilization. So everybody wakes up in the morning some days feeling absolutely worthless to the world. But it's our job to punch through and make history like the other men who had zits on their face that made them hideously embarrassed and insecurities that almost stopped them in their tracks. They made history, that's our obligation. Now, Buzz listened to this in a way that I can't quite describe. With audiences, I've had those rare occasions where an audience melts to you and gives you a standing ovation in the end. Buzz melted while we were talking. And for the first time in my life, I realized that Buzz is smaller than I am, which is not easy because I'm small. And that Buzz's eyes are the bluest eyes you've ever seen in your life because he was totally absorbed in what I was telling him. And then when we parted company at the luggage terminal because we had different hotels, um, I started to kick myself with embarrassment. And I kicked myself with humiliation and embarrassment because I realized, do you know who you're talking to? Buzz Aldrin has been in history books for 40 years. This whole lecture you gave him is of absolutely no use to him. And so for the next three months, I kicked myself around with guilt over having burdened Buzz with this message. And then it finally came to me. Buzz did something that no human has, has really equaled. He was the second man on the moon. He was the spear tip of a $100 billion operation. And when he came back to Earth, he had, he had no worlds to conquer. And he went into 10 years of depression and alcoholism. His wife even committed suicide. And Buzz had to pull out of that. So what does that tell you? Buzz Aldrin is as insecure and fragile as you and I are, except he had been robbed of a purpose in life because he'd already done the highest thing he could ever do. And to me, Buzz's new role was as a prophet of space. And Buzz was not happy, despite his age, if he was in less than two cities a day, carrying his prophecy of space. And so Buzz needed that message more than just about anybody else on earth. And now you need it and I need it too. Sometimes when we're preaching to another person to try and save that other person's soul, the person we're really preaching to without knowing it is us. And it's time for those two messages. Every day you wake up is the first day of the most important 20 years of your life. And only little humans with all kinds of flaws make history. So if you are a human with all kinds of little flaws, what is your job? Make history. Well, that was beautiful. Now we are nearing the top of the house and I need to let you 
go back to writing uh, your next books. Uh, <laughs> and there was a, another couple of little things that uh, I wanted to discuss, including uh, your next books, in fact. Uh, so first, this uh, Space Development Steering Committee. Thank you very much for inviting me to the meetings, but you know, they are at, they come uh, at a bizarre hour. 3 a.m. in the morning yes. for me. And right. uh, on you Monday, know, of, no uh, all the 24 hours of the day, that's the one which is more difficult for me, so I never attended so far. Right. So maybe can you tell me something about uh, SDSC? What uh, do you want to achieve and how? Um, we started in 2005 when I met Buzz. And Buzz was surrounded by other people and he was talking to me and he said, look, we have an election coming up in three years and space is nowhere on the agenda of debate and space must be on the agenda of the debate. So I said, okay, I'll put together a group and we'll work to accomplish that. And I put together the Space Development Steering Committee. Now, it turns out the Space Development Steering Committee is a bunch of extraordinarily knowledgeable people about space. Um, and the news, the information we get every single week is astonishing. And we have been pushing to make space as visibly as we can without tools. You know, once upon a time, um, I left my science, but I didn't really leave it. I took my science into a field expedition. And I went into something I knew absolutely nothing about, popular culture. And I ended up founding the biggest PR firm in the music industry, working with Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss Queen, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, people like that. And I assembled, first of all, I worked for years to develop relationships with the key tastemakers in the music journalism business. So I could take them to lunch and tell them stories. Um, and I hired a staff and trained them from scratch. And it became the largest staff in the music industry. Well, I've performed as a person who wished he had that apparatus, that mechanism available for the last 17 years in the Space Development Steering Committee. We develop press releases, we get them out to the press, we've developed pictures, we've gotten those out to the press. I need to resurrect an old press release that in essence said it is time for us to develop, to develop the elements of infrastructure for space transport, and which means infrastructure for the moon and infrastructure for Mars, which means uh, we can now buy launch services from SpaceX. And if just Jeff Bezos ever gets his act together, we'll be able to buy launch services from him too. But who's going to design and build the habitats, the nice and comfortable homes where we're gonna enjoy kicking back um, on the moon and Mars? Who's gonna enjoy the excavation equipment it's going to take to dig these habitats in? Who's going to invent the, they're called in situ resource utilization units that it will take to take the ice on the moon, which is there in abundance, and turn it into breathable oxygen and drinkable water and fuel, rocket fuel, 
which will be the most valuable thing in space. Um, who's going to develop the mining equipment? All of that stuff needs to be designed now. Why? Because the Starship will be flying successfully within less than a year. And the Starship is capable not only of taking 100 people to the moon or Mars, it's capable of taking 100 tons of cargo at a time. It can take all the elements of an infrastructure. We just need to design and build them. And if we don't get started, we're not going to get it done in time. And the Russians and Chinese, as I said, have a plan for a research base on the moon and we'll get it done before we do. And that will be, a, that will put us so far behind as Western civilization that it's ridiculous. It'll be like getting knocked out in the ring. Um, so we need to get these things together. So I'm now, I, if I ever get the time, I wanna dig back through our old press releases that had pictures of each of these infrastructure elements, the construction equipment, the habitat, the mining equipment, the ISRU units, and dig it out of mothballs and send it out again with a slight rewrite of the press release. Because now we're about to be able to take this stuff to space and install it on the moon and install it on Mars. Because Elon intends to have um, his first Mars vehicles departing sometime in the next two years, his first cargo vehicles to Mars. And we can pre-position this stuff habitat, mining equipment, construction equipment, ISRU equipment. We can pre-position this on Mars so that when we get there, um, we're all set to go. We're ready to run. So these are the kinds of things that have been developed within the Space Development Steering Committee. John Strickland, one of our key members of the group, is also on the board of the National Space Society. I'm on the board of governors of the National Space Society. John Strickland has written two illustrated books about developing space, the economic development of space, and then the starships beyond that will go between the stars. Um, and they're amazing. They're encyclopedic and they've got all these amazing illustrations. So we haven't been able to achieve what I would like. I no longer have a team of 15 people who are absolutely trained to change the minds of people in the press the way we used to. My, my specialty was perceptual turnarounds, taking something the press saw as a negative and making them see the truth of it. And when you see the truth of something, it's often positive. It changes your entire perception. That was my job um, in the rock and roll industry. But as I said, it was field work for my science because since the age of 12, I've really been into the science of mass behavior, which Isaac Asimov brought to my attention in his foundation trilogy. I was reading two books a day at the age of 10. And among the first books that I read was the foundation. At that point, it was a trilogy. And he talks about mass behavior. Well, my job has been the mass behavior um, of the, well, mass behavior from the mass behavior of quarks to the mass behavior of human beings. So I've been published or I've given lectures at scholarly conferences in quantum physics, in cosmology, in abiotic evolution of the cosmos, um, in uh, the origins of life, um, in evolutionary biology, um, in neuroscience, in information science, 
and in biopolitics. I'm probably missing a few because it's 11 different fields. And as an ophthalmologist, my goal is to weave them all into one big picture. So, uh, and we'll see how far I can get getting that across to people and uplifting them with it in my lifetime. I'm sure you will. And by the way, don't forget to let me know if there is anything that I can do to help with the space development steering committee and all that, just let me know. That would be I'm terrific. Happy, I'll be happy to contribute as much as I can. That, that's fantastic. Okay, let's wrap things up. Could you just tell me three little things that all space enthusiasts should be doing right today? Um, support Elon Musk. Um, oppose yourself to um, people who say that this is just billionaires taking joy rides. No, these are billionaires expanding the realm of possibility for all of life, not just for humankind, but for all of life. So defend these guys to the best of your ability against people like Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, who say that all this money should be spent on feeding the earth. When right. you open new horizons, you uplift the poor and the oppressed. Um, when the new world was open to Europeans, it lifted the poor and the oppressed. Up until then, sugar was something that only the very rich could afford. Um, and sugar is the most vital, the two most vital chemicals for life, the two that are absorbed the fastest in your bloodstream and brought into your metabolism are glucose and alcohol. And when the new world opened up, we Westerners came up with new ways to distill alcohol. And the result was, unfortunately, that even the poorest people had alcohol. Um, but more positively, even the poorest people had sugar. And sugar is the most immediate stimulus, the most immediate nutrient that you can get. It's an energizer. And, um, and the lives of the poor have changed in incredible ways beyond that. Um, I had a friend in my neighborhood who begs in front of the local neighborhood supermarket. And he, my wife tried to give him a place to live in our basement at one point and it turned out he was thoroughly destructive, which is why he can't live any place. He has to live on the street. But he had a bicycle, um, he had a cell phone, now, look, there was a guy in England in uh, 1850 who was the richest, most powerful man in England. And he was a techno freak. He loved technology. And he was such a techno freak that he put together a building and invited people from Russia, the United States, China, all over the world, Bolivia, to bring their latest technologies to display in the building that he had built. His name was Prince Albert, his wife was Queen Victoria. Prince Albert, despite all of his obsession with absolutely the latest in everything, died of a stomach ailment at the age of 42. My friend, Derek, the homeless person in front of my supermarket, he had super high-tech shoes, the shoes that were developed by Nike. Um, he, he, as I said, he had a bicycle and a cell phone. And if he got sick and had a stomach problem, he simply walked or bicycled five blocks to the local emergency room at the local hospital, and they gave him an antibiotic. So Derek, the homeless man, lived 72 years. 
30 years longer than the most powerful man in England had been able to achieve in, 18, in the 1850s. So these things trickle down as, uh, as a, a disgusting as the trickle down theory is. Things do trickle down and they lift the poor and the oppressed. And when we open the cornucopia of space, the poor and the oppressed are going to be the ones to be lifted the most dramatically. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, I had another point that is so complicated that it would take uh, hours of conversation to explore yeah. that. But it's uh, very important to me. As a matter of fact, I'm writing a section of my next book right about that. So perhaps I could just say something and you answer yes or no. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, the question is thinking of uh, the ideas uh, that are uh, promoted by Frank White and Steve Wolf and others, including yourself. Huh? There is a role that we are meant to play in the evolution of the universe. And, you know, we, we don't really know the, what the universe is evolving toward. I think myself that perhaps uh, it could be some kind of uh, universal mind. And my question is, uh, do we need radically new physics to understand all that, to understand universal evolution, or is today's physics almost good enough? We're we, almost need something, we need something beyond physics. We have made the mistake ever since Aristotle told us um, 2,200, 2,300 years ago that to understand something, you break it down to its tiniest bits, he called those bits its elements. And he used a metaphor, even though he said metaphor should be forbidden in science. And his metaphor was that if you understand the laws by which these elements operate, you will understand everything you want to know about a system. Well, we've been pursuing that program for 2,300 years, and it's gotten us a long way, but it's also stymied us, blinded us, why? Because the real magic of a frog is not in its subatomic particles. It's not in its atoms. It's not in its molecules. It's in this grand group identity that is the frog. The magic of you're 100 trillion cells. And as I said, 90 trillion don't even claim to be you. But there's this larger emergent property that's so much more powerful than the individual atoms, quarks, and cells within you that it defies belief. And it's called Julio Prisco. And it's managed to sustain this extraordinary identity that goes beyond the power of any physics or chemistry to explain for 65 years now. Mm. And that is astonishing. Right. Uh, I, uh, you said it goes beyond the power of any physics or chemistry. Right. Which is uh, similar to what I think, but uh, now at this point, the real uh, hard reductionist would say, okay, that's all good. There is, there are emergent phenomena, but ultimately, you know, at the end, if you really look into things, this emergent phenomena, like you and me, must be a direct consequence of the microphysics laws 
that we have uh, uncovered so far. Or of some they're wrong. Right. Yeah, right. I hear they're that wrong. all the time. And they're they are wrong. wrong. Right. They are wrong. The, the I also simple think... laws of attraction and repulsion between electrons and protons does not help us understand what Julio Prisco or Howard Bloom is and how it comes to be. There are laws of emergent properties. We have not begun to explore them because we have been too obsessed with Aristotle's approach to science, break it down into its smallest parts. No, it turns out Aristotle was wrong. You will come to understand a great deal if you break things down to their smallest parts, but you will not come to understand the most important things of all, which are these overarching identities that mass amounts of particles take when they get together. But didn't Aristotle also point us toward a new way of doing things where he explicitly recognized that besides efficient causation, which is the only form of causation recognized by today's science, we can also think of a final and formal teleological forms of causation that science has not really studied yet, has not even begun to study. And I shouldn't we perhaps totally. follow? Right. That's, I agree with you totally. And there's a conversation going on in a group called EduTalk that I'm a part yeah, of. Yeah, and, I'm in um, that group too. Right, and, and right now the discussion is about autopoetic systems. Well, autopoetic is a word that carefully disguises the fact that it's really talking about teleology, about the influence of the future on the present. And you're right, Aristotle had causation from the past and he had causation from the future. And then a German, not even a scientist, a popular book writer in Germany in 1850, came out with a book that was a smash and made a major change in the way people think. It was the book that established materialism. It was a book that put across the phrase my grandmother used to use for herself, a free thinker. And in that book, he outlawed teleology. He outlawed the influence of the future on the present. And science, without realizing where it got this prejudice, has been carrying along with that prejudice ever since. But in order to understand autopoiesis, in order to understand a Julio Prisco and a Howard Bloom, look, we are all fingertips of a search engine. This cosmos is a search engine constantly searching the realm of the impossible. Or in Stuart Kaufman's term, constantly exploring the landscape of possibility space to discover what possibilities can be taken from the realm of maybe into the realm of, oh my God, that's real. I, I encounter that every day. And, and humans, the, the cosmos has been very successfully probing possibility space without us, with atoms, with stars, with galaxies, with black holes, with herds of galaxies, which are social and have an emergent group identity. Um, but when she got hold of macromolecules that could make copies of themselves and ultimately human beings, she hit the jackpot in exploring the realm of the possible future. I didn't really catch uh, uh, which 19th century writer you're talking about. Um, I, Ludwig Buchmann or something, I forget his name, it's in The God Problem. There's a big- I will look, 
yeah, I will yeah. look. Uh, I will look in the gold problem. So about that, and that's uh, we're going to end here. Uh, could you just say again what are the titles of the two new books you're working on, and when can we expect to read them? In about a year and a half, you should be able to read the case of the sexual cosmos. Everything you know about nature is wrong, which will hopefully radically get get you to radically reperceive everything. Um, because that's the goal of all my books. And the second is the grand unified theory of everything in the universe, including sex violence and the human soul. And you have an uh, ETA for that? Uh, no, I don't. I have a 77 uh, chapter outline for it. Um, but first I have to finish the case of the sexual cosmos. Right. And I have to get a publisher lined up. But my right. my publisher for my last two books is reading it right now the manuscript i really look forward to reading your next books well uh, perhaps you'll write more than two books i hope right. so and well uh i want to thank you very much howard for your uh, time and this has been really a great conversation you have given me a lot of food for thoughts not only to me but um, i hope also to the few people who will listen to this recording. Thank you very much again. And thanks, Julio, because you have shined a light in my life. You have given me motivation. And you've done this for several years now. <laughs>